With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to the first Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor show of 2023. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 107th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners everywhere in the world out there. Happy New Year. I sincerely appreciate you in all of the now 75-plus countries where you are located. Thank you for sending all your messages. I love getting them. Please keep them coming. My January Privacy Professor Tips message was published on December 30th. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. They are free as they have always been since 2005. So on to our topic today. First of all, though, did you know that January 28th is officially International Data Privacy Day? Well, it is. What are you doing to recognize this day? Well, I do several things each year, as you might imagine. One of the actions that I've taken since 2011 is drafting a proclamation for the governor of my home state of Iowa to officially use, to officially proclaim January 28th to be Iowa Data Privacy Day. This request has been fulfilled every year from 2011 through 2022 by three different governors in different political parties throughout that time period. So it's good to know that uh, all folks of all political parties seem to recognize, at least most of them, I would say, uh, privacy as being important. And yes, I have all 12 of those official proclamation documents with the governor's original signatures on them and the beautiful gold seals on them here in my office. You know, I tweak the wording of the proclamation drafts each time I submit them each year to reflect a little bit the privacy risks and breaches and issues that have emerged throughout the previous year. I have not yet found out As of today's show, though, if my request for a 2023 proclamation has been approved, since some of those tweaks I made this year reflect privacy impacts of body autonomy 
issues that occurred in 2022. I sure hope that it will once more get uh, approved. Send me an email letting me know what you are doing or did, depending upon when you are listening in to this episode uh, for Data Privacy Day 2023. And I may mention it on one of my next shows. Here's another action I took. The topic of my January Privacy Professor Tips 2023 issue recognizes not only January 28 as International Data Privacy Day, but also how it is now evolving and expanding into having January being an international month recognizing the importance of privacy, privacy risks, privacy problems, and it answers a wide range of questions that my team and I have received about privacy along with cybersecurity issues. We have received many, many questions about the very important topic of identity theft and identity fraud for many years, and possibly even more throughout 2022. And today I have a wonderful, insightful guest to discuss her own very recent and very personal experience in her family with identity theft. Today my guest is cybersecurity expert Christine Abruzzi. Christine is the owner of Kakapen Cyber Solutions LLC, and she has almost 30 years of IT and cybersecurity experience. Now, when Christine's husband, David, became the victim of identity theft in August 2022, Christine told me that she thought she knew enough about the topic at that point in time to help her uh, her husband to shut it down quickly and limit the impact of his life. Well, imagine her frustration then when after more than two months and countless hours of phone calls and emails, David was still getting calls from his financial institutions trying to confirm his change of address, which he had not submitted, but that the identity thieves had submitted. Christine is sharing the details of her husband's ordeal today to empower others listening to take actions to reduce the likelihood of also being the victims of identity theft. Christine is also sharing the services and resources she has used that are available to others who have had their identity also stolen. You can see much more about Christina Bruzzi and a listing of those sources that she's going to describe today in her bio and in the information about this show on my Voice America show site description, in my January tips message, and on my Privacy and Security Bradyacks website. Christine, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Hey, Rebecca. Thank you, and thanks for having me, and you're welcome to be on your show. (laughs) Well, I'm so happy you're willing to talk about this because, you know, I think a lot more identity uh, fraud types of activities and identity theft in particular is occurring than what a lot of folks may realize. So I think it'll be very helpful. And I guess I'll start with, you know, what tipped you off 
that, uh, or David, or maybe both of you, that something was going on. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I am, for both of us, um, we have at the address here, um, I subscribe to have what's called informed delivery through the U.S. Postal Service. And what Ooh, that me informed too. delivery does. I love does, that, by the way. I'm sorry? <laughs> I said me too. I love that. Oh. I think all of our listeners, uh, at least in the U.S., should sign up for that. But go ahead. <laughs> yes. So what that is, and, and we live in a rural area. So I'm, I live in the country in West Virginia. And um, so sometimes our mail service can be erratic. And so this informed delivery what it allows us to do is each day I get um, a email with images of our incoming mail and also notifications if we can expect any packages. So normally the mail will rec- that I receive in this email that's imaged in this email arrives that day. So we know what to expect. Um, we can also know if anything is missing. So one day I just going through my emails in the morning. Uh, David was out working outside on a, a little building that he's building outside here, and um, I open up our my informed delivery email, and I noticed just scanning through that there was a notice from the U.S. Postal Service itself confirming David's change of address. It's like, what? <laughs> so I go out there on my way to go get the mail. It's about a quarter of a mile walk down to my mailbox, and I stopped by David. I said, hey, David, uh, something you need to tell me? <laughs> you, you've got a change of a change of address confirmation coming. He says, "No." So I go down and get the post uh, the postcard, and sure enough, uh, it, it says, "You know, it doesn't actually put on there what the forwarding address is." So uh, we go marching back up to the house, and uh, there is a phone number on the confirmation card. So David, first thing he does is he calls that confirmation of that phone number and reports that um, after being on hold for a while reports that he received this confirmation card and that no he had not put in a change of address forwarding request so the, the woman taking the information gave him a confirmation or a claim number so at that point you know we assumed that number two things would happen number one that they would stop the forwarding and number two, that some kind of a fraud investigation would go on because obviously they know the address to which the mail is supposedly to be forwarded. The second thing we did after we did that um, is we came on and, and, okay, this is bad, and this is something that I'm going to recommend that all of your listeners do if they haven't already. Um, David was did not actively have online accounts with the three credit bureaus. So the three credit bureaus are Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And uh, it takes about uh, between 5 and 15 minutes at each of these individual credit bureaus to establish an online account. Part of that involves doing a step called identity verification. And each of the bureaus does that slightly differently um, in some cases they will use the phone number that you are calling in from or um, an email address that is associated, and they have some back-end confirmation services. In this case, obviously online, there was not a phone number associated. Uh, they'll do some back-end confirmation services that your name is associated with that email credibly. In other cases, they'll do what's called um, knowledge-based verification, 
and pulling information that they have received from your credit reporting agencies or your credit financial industries, um, they'll pull together a multiple choice list of things like, you know, what street did you live in? Mm. Uh, you know, yeah, so they have information yeah. that I, in theory, only you should know. Um, right. That's problematic, but it also uh, allows you to some degree of certainty them to verify that the person they're interacting with online is who they say they are to some degree. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not perfect, but it's, it's close enough. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> before you before you go on, so gosh, you've sure. given us so, so much great information so far. I want to go back to when David called yes. uh, the postal service. So, and I don't know if I caught this correctly or not, but did you say they would not tell you the address to where your mail had been indicated to be forwarded to? That's correct. So they would and. and <laughs> well, I, I'm yeah. trying to understand that because you're calling about your mail being forwarded to somewhere, but they wouldn't tell you where. I, I'm trying to figure that out. It's, you know, you and I being in cybersecurity and privacy, I mean, what was their logic there? Oh, Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. <laughs> if, you think you're, if you think that doesn't make sense and that that is baffling. Um, yes, yeah, there's there's more of that to come. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. So well, I, I, I really okay. So I, I do realize I, I got completely diverted, but so so first thing we did was we called. He called the post office, reported that it was fraud. They gave him a claim number. Second thing we right. did was we established online accounts for David yes. at each of the three credit bureaus. And right. once we did yeah. that, we could immediately do two things. We could immediately. Oh put a freeze on each of his files at each of the different bureaus. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. And then the second thing we did was we scrolled down. We could pull, um, you get, when you do it, you get, um, depending on the bureau, I think five or six, they'll pull your credit report and they'll give it to you immediately online. Um, And you could do that up to five or six times a year for free, Um, more in the case of David now that we've got a fraud alert associated with his files. So so we did the two things. Number one is we um, put freezes on it, and the second thing we did was we scrolled down. We pulled the – for each each bureau, uh, we had them generate the report, and we Mm -hmm. scrolled down – um, to the inquiry sections. And okay. there are two types of inquiries. One is called a hard inquiry, and the second is called a, a soft or a passive inquiry. And the hard inquiries are where you are applying for a new credit card or a new mortgage or car loan, and the financial institution queries your credit report with your permissions supposedly, and then the notation, you know, it gets marked there that um, that they were, that inquiry is made, and then they, they send the results of the credit report, and so a decision can be made. So we saw in doing this that there were three credit cards that were applied for in David's name, none of which he had done himself. So the next step after taking the phone number associated with each of those banks had to call and run the gauntlet to get to the right person 
to report that you know these credit cards had been applied for under fraudulently under a different name. Um, in one case, the credit card had been had been um, accepted and was on and en route. So um, the thought was, well, now that we've shut down the card, the the mail forwarding, the credit mm-hmm. card will you know, not go to the the fraudster. Um, but they also obviously shut the credit card down at that point. Uh, one credit card application, they didn't have enough information, so they didn't even process it, nor did we even get a rejection or anything that we know about. Um, and then in the third case, I think they were in the process of it, so obviously they shut down the application. So as far as we can tell... Um, we were able to stop any any actual fraud being committed, financial fraud, um, to our knowledge. That being said, um, there's some chilling other things that could have happened that we're not aware of yet, um, and I can talk about that in a bit. So, sure. um, that yeah. So, and then we also reviewed his credit, the other parts of his credit report, to make sure that he didn't have any fraudulent charges on any of his existing credit cards. Uh, we didn't see any new credit activity or new reports of new credit cards show up. Um, so we just kind of, so at that point, we thought we had done everything we needed to do. So this is, so you discovered on August 18th. 18th. Yeah. And now you're up to, what, just a, a couple of days later after you've probably spent all your time during that time. <laughs> All these things. Um, so yeah, so no, th- we did all this the first day. It, the, the first August day. 18th. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, we did all of this. Oh, are you kidding? Because the fear and adrenaline and yes. anger and how can this be happening? Very disconcerting. And so you've done all of this, uh-huh. and uh-huh. and now you know you. You shut down the credit cards, but how about the mail? Because you said you're, <laughs> that, that still is in my brain and just baffles me. But go ahead, yeah. go ahead. Okay, yeah. So, so like I said, we we immediately called, reported the fraud, um, and was given a claim number. Yeah. And we were told, I think he was told that it takes a couple days to shut that down. So we assumed that there would be a, some lag where mail had been being forwarded. Um, he eventually did get that credit card that one had been turned off already. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, and you know, so I get mail. We don't get a lot of mail. Um, and, and a lot of like our, like our utility accounts, like our, our electricity, they're in my name, telephone I do. I do a lot of our joint utility accounts and phone accounts. I do them online anyways myself. David, on the other hand, prefers to do everything via the mail, um, his choice, but <laughs> we're kind of finding out that that has its own problems as well. Um, so we, we, we were still getting, I was still getting mail, and then any, any of our financial accounts that had both my name and his name on it, they mm-hmm. still came through. So we really thought we had shut it down at the source. We did a couple more times checking his credit reports to make sure that nothing new, that we hadn't, we hadn't missed anything. And, and so far to date, we haven't seen anything strange show up on his credit reports, except for <laughs> an address in Post Falls, Idaho. 
Yeah, so and we don't have any friends or family in Post Falls, Idaho. So that was um, the first really indication, well, not the first indication that we had of the actual address that his mail had been forwarded to. Um, what we did find out was he was getting calls um, about a good month later from mm-hmm. Penny Mac, his, our mortgage company, um, saying, just confirming we're going to forward your address or forward your, you've changed your address. And he says, no. And at that point, the lady gave him the address that had been forwarded. So we assumed, you know, early on that this was just going to be, it was all being forwarded to some post office box in New York or something. Mm-hmm. And come to find out, it's an, actually an apartment building in an apartment in Post Falls, Idaho. And oh, my. so, yeah, so well, David actually, at that point, sent a, went online and got, uh, email address for the police department in Post Falls, Idaho, and Ooh. sent them a notification saying, hey, this fraud is happening, and um, here is the address, and is there anything you thinking, you know, they could go by and check yeah. it out? Um, nope, didn't do that. They just sent us uh, a link to the Federal Trade Commission identity fraud resources. <gasps> I know. <laughs> well, so, so you're telling them that there's yep. someone committing a federal crime in their city <laughs> and they didn't know it. Oh my gosh. This is just blowing my mind. Okay. Go oh, ahead. Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so this is something we learned. Yeah. There is a, there is a difference between identity theft yes. and identity fraud. Okay. And yeah. And given the lack of resources and especially, during the pandemic and post-pandemic, the mm-hmm. unprecedented, the unfathomable amount of fraud that's been going on, especially um, unemployment benefits fraud, that mm-hmm. they're, they're really stretched resource-wise. And so the, this difference between identity theft and identity fraud, while if you're the victim of, of this, it doesn't matter, right? It still feels like a violation mm-hmm. from a law enforcement or even a financial institution. So identity theft is the basically obtaining information uh, about a person and enough information about a person mm-hmm. and, um, and pretending to be that person. Identity fraud is using that information to actually commit fraud. In most cases, it would be like a financial fraud or there'll be a financial benefit. But in other cases, identity fraud can be used to commit, um, you can get medical access to medical care under the other person's name or um, employment. You know, they can use another person's name to gain employment um, that kind of stuff. So, so David, is, as far as we can tell at this point, uh, counts as being the victim of identity theft, mm-hmm. which is illegal, but not necessarily worthy of the resources and uh-huh. law enforcement attention, etc. Um, that identity fraud, or had he been the victim of, you know, had they gotten away with, for instance, getting the credit cards. So, right. and, and that, that's the same, but one of the important elements that we learned, and we didn't, we didn't know this until, we, we didn't think this was necessary until after, you know, a, a month or so after, 
Mm. He still was getting, like, he would get some mail, like he would get packages which are not forwarded. But like I said, we just thought there was this gap where his credit card bills and the mortgage statement, that there was this gap where they kind of, the one wave got forwarded and we're sitting in someone's apartment in Post Falls, Idaho, and um, that at some point all this would be resolved and it would catch up. And in the meantime, he went online and he did a one-time payment for the mortgage online and a one-time payment for his credit card online. Mm-hmm. So we, we really were just, you know, yeah, this is really inconvenient and unfortunate, but um, we were just kind of bebopping along. But then they're also possibly getting some of the physical mail. They are. Addressed to David, right? Absolutely they are, which is really kind of creepy and dangerous. Well, and that's the thing. So to kind of complete the story about what the Postal Service role in all of this was, is come to find out, and let me check my timeline here. Um, So we had actually gone on vacation end of September. So we, we, this was August 18th, um, got that change of address verification, immediately took action, thought everything was taken care of. Come to find out, um, our two assumptions that the, we had made when David called on August 18th to report the fraud to the Postal Service, the two assumptions were, one, they would stop the forwarding address, and two, they would start an investigation as to who had committed this fraud. Come to find out, and we didn't find this out till uh, a good month later, uh, neither of those things happened. Oh. The mail continued to be forwarded. <gasps> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Let, let's stop right there because we, have, we do have a break right now. But, oh, my oh, gosh. Sure. Okay. Christine. <laughs> so Christine's going to to continue this just fascinating and, and horrific story. But right now it's uh, time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with cybersecurity expert and business owner Christina Bruzzi about her recent real life experience dealing with identity theft and possibly identity fraud. We'll find out when we come back. But I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as topic suggestions. You can use my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit 
privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm having such a fascinating conversation today with cybersecurity expert and business owner, Christina Bruzzi, about her recent and maybe even still ongoing real-life experience um, dealing with identity theft of her husband's identity. So, Christine, you were saying right before we went to the break that you went on vacation in, what, late September, but that the mail was still still being <laughs> forwarded? Yeah, continue yeah. on, please. This is just Yeah, yeah, and, and like I said, you know, there was a trickle of mail coming through, and David mm-hmm. doesn't really get a lot of mail to begin with, um, a lot of our mail is, is joint mail or in my name. So it really wasn't, you know, over the top obvious that right. that we knew. And, and again, we also kind of factored in that there was probably going to be a couple weeks of downstream effects while things caught up. But little did we suspect that, um, you know, the postal service did not take action on our original reported call. And so prior to going on vacation out of the country, David started getting calls from the mortgage company, from a life insurance company, and confirming, and from our little local bank here in West Virginia, confirming his change of address. And it was through one of those calls that they disclosed, they were able to disclose the address, the recipient's address, and I think I mentioned that already. Yeah. And so, well, let me just do a quick yeah, thing because yeah. this blows my mind. Because you, 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 you found it out August eighteenth, and you do you spend all this time doing what you think will be necessary to resolve this, and you're probably feeling kind of, you know, who um, I relieve, we're relieved, we could go on our vacation, not worry about it. It must have been such a shock then. To find out that all of that, that uh, those actions you took before you went on vacation, now it's almost worse now. I mean, is that correct? Or, or go oh, ahead, story. Yeah, well, be, yeah, because what happens is, and we did not understand this before, is the postal service, in addition to 
forwarding the mail that's already in process, that's already in, in, in oh. cycle, they also, I guess, proactively notify all of our financial institutions. Oh. Yeah. I, I think that's what happened. I'm, I'm pretty, I can't explain for it any other way. Okay. That not only do they forward it, but they also notify the financial institutions that they forwarded it. Which I, wow. I guess, from a risk standpoint, you know, legitimately, yeah. if this was legitimate, that makes sense, right? And that's right. probably a nice service. It kind of saves us from having to notify everyone. Remember how in the past where you had to fill out all those change of address forms? Oh, yes. yes. Maybe this is just the automated version of that. Right. So yeah. So here we thought. So, so that's what the other thing we thought. Well, okay, this is just a artifact, a, a leftover effect from the change of address. And so and that's and I think when we went on vacation it, it was a couple months now, so I'm trying to remember. But I think when we went on vacation, we just assumed that the postal service had shut down the forwarding and that right. this was just the downstream effects from that proactive notification. Um so that's that's what, when we went on vacation, that's what we were thinking. So he before going on vacation once again, reached out to all of his financial institutions, which they're, for him is not a lot, and mm-hmm. you know, corrected the incorrect address. Okay. Well, of course, now all of those bank accounts and uh, credit cards and stuff, they're reporting his new address to the credit agencies. Oh. <laughs> oh, know. my gosh. Oh, I know. And so... <sighs> And so we go on vacation, that was late September, we come back early October, and he's getting another round of calls. Oh, my. From from the the banks and the mortgage company, and that's how we first, so this would have been early October, this all started mid-August, so that's early October when we got back from vacation is when we realized that... Something much more was admiss, which was this this postal service had not shut down the forwarding, that it was still actively forwarding in effect. So um, that's when, in addition to being very angry and Mm -hmm. fearful and frustrated and everything, um, he went to our local, so he called, first thing he did was he called the the postmaster in Post Falls, Idaho, and right. basically said, uh, well, your name, I can tell you right now, your name is not associated with that address, but that doesn't mean anything. It just means that, you know, so well, I don't know what that means, but he also could not tell him anything about who was at that address for you know, uh, right. privacy, right? We want to protect right. the privacy of the fraudsters. So then he said, and plus, I don't know who you are, so I can't stop forwarding. So I can't invalidate who you are oh. over the telephone. Okay. So he suggested that David go down to our local post office, Great Kakapin, and talk to the postmaster there. So I guess the postmaster at our local post office is not uh, – he's got – anyways, what we really wanted to do was talk to a supervisor. So then he went into the next largest town and talked to the supervisor there who was able to pull up – the original change of address notification and notif- noticed, um, 
couldn't see who it was put in, but it was done electronically. So what we learned is there's two ways of putting in a change of address notification. One is I can go down to my local post office and fill out a card, and that gets validated by my carrier. And the second is, which is what we think the fraudsters did, or we're sure the fraudsters did, is you can do this online. Right. And, um, yeah. And so. And they said they couldn't anyone, tell? Because in my brain, of course, I'm thinking, well, yeah, logs should be able to show them the IP address from where that submission originated. And unless they were spoofing the IP address, why they should be able to <laughs> at least go to that, right? But I guess. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. So, again, <laughs> they're. they're we are learned I've learned so much about how things work and to the post office's credit, you know, obviously limited resources, the postal services credit. Um, they maximize convenience for their customers and at the cost of those few people and maybe it's a growing number, who knows? Yeah. Uh, those few people who are using their system um, to commit fraud. So the second way of putting in a change of address, which we believe the fraudster did, is you can do it online. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that online, uh, you have to do, again, identity verification. And right. for the U.S. Postal Service process for change of address, um, identity verification involves making a small financial payment. Um, I think it's like a dollar, a dollar five, something like that. So here's what we think happened. We think the fraudster, the criminal, obtained the little package of information about David, uh, most likely from the dark web, which is pretty much a fact of of common life right now, and and then used that information to open a bank account in David's name and... Yes, and got a debit card. So, and used that debit card then to put in the online change of address through the U.S. Postal Service system. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For my listeners, I want you to know that one of Christine's deep areas of expertise is in identity access management. So I just can imagine how your head is exploding when you hear <laughs> about the ways in which they were doing identity access management. Because seriously, listeners, Christine knows the best ways to do identity <laughs> access management. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, yeah, my, my brain is just kind of blowing up at this point. So yeah. the same at the same time, he goes in and at, at this point, no one can give him any information. And so at this point, he while he's in town anyways, he drives into our local sheriff and files a report. And this is where he, we, the, the uh, difference between identity theft and identity fraud, pretty yeah. much so the guy took his statement and the, the sheriff, you know, took his recorded statement and says, okay, and... David says, well, do I get a claim number or do I get a, a, a case number or anything? Um, well, I don't know what we're supposed to do. Nothing is really, you haven't been the victim of fraud yet. Mm. Yeah. So, um, but hmm. the chilling part is, and we can kind of talk about this as far as, you know, what our, our 
next steps are. So at this mm-hmm. point, we think we've... We, he finally talked to... A, a, very frustrating conversations. He finally talked to somebody at the USPS fraud investigation department, and mm. he, we had to have our local um, postal inspector validate that David was who he says he was, for instance, and, and that this fraud had happened. And um, and so they had then also recommended that... Um, so we were finally basically able to put in a stop order. So this happened in, so this all started on August 18th. Um, the, looks like it was not till, it was two months later in mid-October. Oh. That David received a confirmation of stopping a change of address form. Oh, wow. Two months. Two months that mail has has been forwarded to this this other address. Yeah, so any kinds of you know, like David's like, did my parents send me a card? You know, yeah, it's like it's it's really creepy to think about. It, it, yes. Um, so yeah, um, and so finally they were able to stop it. Um, it still took a couple days. It takes like you know five to seven days for the the stop change of address to go into effect. So what we did, because we were just really not trusting anything at this point, is I was in town um, on business. I was in the D.C. area, so I mailed David a card. He had a couple other friends mail from different areas to make sure that once and for all that his mail has been coming through. So we think as of about mid to late October, he's actually been getting his mail again. Wow. Yeah. So there's so many disconnects in in there, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I I won't get into those. That would be a whole other show, right? To analyze the <laughs> what didn't but, work. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I guess you know, as we we are coming along here, I think we have about maybe five minutes or so left. What what are some as you know, we're getting toward the end because I know there's so many other details I could ask you about. But you know, what would you tell our our re- our listeners? about some of the primary lessons learned then. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. So there's some things that, um, some actions that listeners can take now that yeah. will lessen their likelihood of being victims of identity theft and or identity fraud. Um, and so the, the, the actions that I can recommend now are, number one, go and establish your online accounts with the three credit bureaus. So that's Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. Mm-hmm. And then uh, while you're there, check your, check your credit reports if you're not doing that regularly. And then while you're there, also put a freeze on each of those files with each of the credit bureaus. And so mm-hmm. there's, the freezes are what they do. is Remember we talked about the hard inquiries and the soft inquiries? Uh The hard inquiries are the ones where you apply for a new credit card or a bank loan, and they check your credit, they pull your credit report. Um, The soft inquiries are you have a line of credit, and periodically your existing financial institution checks your credit to make sure that either offer you a credit increase or make sure that you're still an appropriate risk. And so those are called software inquiries. The freezes, which are free and are uh, 
required, I think, through the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, they basically say um, they block any new credit card inquiries. So, um, and what, what that means then is when you do want to apply for new credit, you'll need to temporarily and at no cost put a pause or I think Experian calls it a thaw on your on your credit report that will allow your credit, the financial institution to pull your credit report um, with your permission and then immediately go back in and put the freeze back on. And so mm-hmm. when you're doing this, they're going to try and say that your credit is unlocked. The credit locks are, they're going to upsell you on, you know, their paid credit monitoring service. Uh, mm. The credit lock just kind of does a little bit additional um, services. For instance, I think the freezes, which are free, um, if someone does try to pull his credit report, and uh, we won't necessarily, David won't necessarily be notified. Okay. Um, and so, um, and but it, with, if you pay for their services, then um, you'll, you'll be notified and you get free credit reports. So, so I, we choose not to pay for the additional credit monitoring service, even with David's um, credit fraud. So, so in David's case, um, because he has been the victim of identity theft, he does have what's called a credit fraud alert, which puts a little added protection on in place. That even if um, you know we did apply for credit and had to put a thaw on those freezes. Um, in this case, they would notify the financial institution, the querying financial institution, that he has been the victim of fraud. So they'll take additional steps to make sure that they're, you know, interacting with the, the right person. And then right. the next thing to do, so, so number one is establish online uh, accounts with your credit agencies. If you're not comfortable doing that, you can call them and have them put a freeze on that way. Um, the disadvantage there is with an online account, you can go on periodically and pull your credit report and monitor any activity actively that way. Um, the second thing is to do would be to monitor any of your online accounts. That's your, your online bank accounts, um, any kind of things that you bill pay that you do, if you pay your credit card. I, I like to pay things online. Um, and so just very actively monitor and manage all of your online accounts. And then the third thing to do is, um, and this wasn't the case in David's um, situation, but another kind of vector or avenue for fraudsters to get access to people's accounts and financial information is through uh, compromising their online credentials or their online identities. And oh, so the sure. third thing, yeah, so the third thing you want to do is um, use some kind of a password manager or a password locker on your devices. So, for instance, I have an Apple iMac. So I'd, Apple iMac comes with keychain access, and so that associates and encrypts all of my password username combinations for the various accounts, uh, various online sites. Um, and then that, because I have multiple Apple devices, the keychain access syncs all that stuff up. So it's a high convenience factor. Uh, we all know long-term that passwords are the weak link 
mm-hmm. in, in, in a lot of security for this online right. accounts. Um, yeah, and, and, and a lot of technologies are being developed and protocols are being developed to get away from the password, but right now passwords are prolific, and so using a password yes. manager or a password vault to manage all the password accounts for your online activities. Well, and I would think, too, use multi-factor authentication as well because with, you know, with requiring that, if there is some reason why they do get your password, at least you have that additional step that they should theoretically be able to do. Absolutely, yes, yeah. And, And that is a requirement for a lot of... Financial institutions and yeah, so so there are there are a lot of mitigations. Um, yeah. Obviously, the financial institutions are very motivated to protect their losses. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, password yeah. managers oh. whenever yeah using any kind of uh, hardware tokens or um, multi-factor authentication stuff. Yes. those are all yeah. And I would say too. I mean, personally. I I am horrified at how many people utilize Facebook credentials to automatically log into their online banks and online retail store. And I'm like, don't do that. So let's, come <laughs> yeah. on. Do not do not use your social media site, you know, link th- because you're linking them up. So anyway, I, I had to throw that in because it just horrifies me. So go, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> now, that being said, uh, full disclosure, so I, obviously I don't do that for my financial institutions, but I do do that for convenience for things like, um, you know, my Facebook, I use it to log into my Pinterest or, you know. Oh, so I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's the, the low, low-risk, low-impact things. That's, yeah. yeah. So there, there, is, there is always that tension between convenience and yes. risk, right? Yes. And, and, you know, also for the listeners, I always tell them on my other shows, Christine, that you don't have, I mean, you have to be accurate and truthful for all of your business, all of your, you know, all of that. But if you're on social media, really, it does not matter if you give them your exact location where you live or your exact birthday. Oh, absolutely. So I, I live in Antarctica. I live on Elephant <laughs> Island, Antarctica on Facebook. So there you go. But uh, anyway, so yeah, so don't feel that you have to answer truthfully for something you volunteered to do free that they're taking all your data anyway. Insulting, you know, that also salts your um, information online for the thieves to have bad data because if somebody tries to, you know, get my identity and say that I'm from Elephant Island, Antarctica, they're going to fail. But, um, <laughs> you know, we we have here a couple of minutes left, but I guess in a, in a couple of minutes, what would you have as the primary takeaway that you want to leave our listeners with today? Sure, yeah. So taking a little bit, Taking a little bit of time now to, we were in denial, and I, I, this is bad. So I was often telling people that the best thing they can do is to put freezes on their credit reports. But did we do it ourselves? No, because we were just, you know, nothing had happened up until that point. And so, um, so take a few minutes now while you're not 
dealing with this and you're not in the heat of it, to establish your online accounts with the, the three credit bureaus, put freezes on your accounts. Um, don't pretty much assume that if you are participating in modern life that your data is because of all the breaches, which I'm sure you've covered. Um, just assume that your data is out there. And so take some logical steps to um, mitigate what they can do with all that data. Um, putting freezes is, is an easy way of doing that. Um, what else? Yes, yeah, I think I think that the three things yeah. um, that I had kind of mentioned earlier. But I, so overall, we're not I, I, we're not cynical. We're just we're we're smarter now as a result. Um, just be aware that so there are things that we have control over, which is you know what I said to um, you know manage actively manage your accounts and your monitor your reports, etc. Put freezes on. Um, but there's some stuff that we don't have control over, yes. and so knowing, in the case, um, you know, knowing what the resources are, and I'll, I'll make sure that you have the ones that we're talking yeah. about. So there's the Identity Theft Resource Center um, that we use. There's also FTC has an identity fraud reporting capability. Um, so being aware of what resources are available should something happen, um, and then just taking the appropriate steps. Yeah. And not yeah. overreacting, but also not underreacting, which I have to say yes. we were kind of in denial. <laughs> well, you, your uh, story has been fascinating. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I know everyone has uh, learned a lot from it, Christine. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. Today I've been speaking with cybersecurity expert and business owner Christine Abruzzi about her recent and, uh, you know, almost maybe at the end of dealing with real life experience with identity theft. And I'm curious, those of my listeners out there from outside of the U.S. too, what do you do in your countries? with regard to identity theft and identity fraud. Uh, and if you're in the in the U.S., tell us about any of your experiences and some feedback about this show. You will see a list on the website of those sites that Christine mentioned, too. So check that out and let me know if you want to hear more about this topic. Just send me a note at RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. And if you can't listen to our uh, original show, you can hear all of the recordings of all my shows at any time you want to hear them on my Voice America Business show site. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them and go out and take those proactive actions that Christine described. They can be so valuable and cause uh, or and help you to not have big headaches. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Happy international January Privacy Awareness Month. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.